All right, so if you missed last week, we're going to start off just going over the last three points. This was kind of a, a six-point sermon, and in the interest of time, I broke it up into two, so you weren't here all day. Um, so there's so much, and I, we talked about how we could actually talk about each one of these verses, probably as a whole sermon. And so just even breaking down into two was, was, was pretty difficult. So the first, uh, if we're looking, we're talking about how we can envision the invisible. We're talking about Jesus Christ and how he is the incarnate uh, deity there. Uh, so the first one is the, the firstborn. Uh, he is the preeminent Christ who is above all. I think I'm all right. Um, so, so he also is the founder. He is the cornerstone of all creation. Everything is made by him, through him, and for him. Then we also see that he is the fastener. He holds everything together. So last week we actually talked about how, how he holds our atoms together, how he holds gravity together, how he holds the earth at the right distance from the sun, how he holds all of that. This week we're going to kind of continue that discussion down into verses 18 through 23. So we're going to be in Colossians 1 again, starting in verse 18. Read with me. This is God's word. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you so much that, that you've given us your word, that, that we're able to, to see it, to hear it, uh, God, that we're able to, to read the words on the page, God. But they're not just, just words on a page, God. They are the living and the active and the inerrant word of God. Uh, Lord God, they are fully truth. So God, as we go through your word today, may you open up our hearts and our minds to receive it. Uh, may it change us from the inside out. God, any, any stresses, anything that we're thinking about, uh, any, any worries for, the, for tomorrow or later on today, may they fall and melt away at your word here now. So God, may, may this be a time of worship, continued worship as we've sang to you, uh, but now we want to continue worship through your word. God, we love you. Amen. So we're going to talk about three more ways that we can envision the invisible. All right, so we talked about the first three. Now here we go. We can envision the invisible through the foundation. We can envision the invisible through the foundation. Colossians 1.18 again, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is the head of the body of the church. I am an under-shepherd. I am nothing when we look at Christ. I am just to say what Christ says and to preach what Christ has already preached through his word. What our church should do missionally, what we should do disciple, uh, uh, regarding discipleship, what we should do with teaching, it should all be led by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the Good Shepherd. 
He is our great teacher, and he is the one who is the truth. Oftentimes, I think pastors and leaders in the church can kind of miss this big point. Uh, Sometimes we feel like we have more authority than we do. We have no authority to change the word, to explain it away, uh, to come up with anything new. That is not our job. Our job is to take the truth and apply the truth and, uh, and, kind of, and give you illustrations to understand the truth. But how our culture feels or how we feel about the truth doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. God is the great shepherd. He is the truth. We're not in charge, and we are to submit to the one who is in charge. This word head here is kephale. Uh, we actually get the word cephalic. If you're a, uh, you know, a, a medical person, you'll hear cephalad or cephalic. Uh, and it means one who is supreme over. Supreme means there's, there's really no competition. It, it's not like, oh, here's him and here's us and we're close. No, it's supreme. He rules over all. We've talked about how he is preeminent. And this idea of the body, he's the head of the body, the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians twelve twelve. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So our churches must be founded on Jesus Christ and his word, for he is the word, as we saw in John 1. We also need to always be attached to the head in order for the body to function properly, right? So we hear that we are the body of Christ. We are the church. So we are arms, we are hands, we are legs, and we are feet. And we are to work according to the head. If you look at anatomy, you're kind of a medical geek like I am. When you look at that, we know that when my hands move, it's because my brain sends a neuronic s- signal. So it sends signals, and it goes through a, s- a series of neurons, and it makes them move, right? So the only time that my hand or my arms or my legs move is because my brain, the head, has told it to move. And that is how we are to be as a church. We move when our head tells us to move. We do what our head tells us to do. Jesus Christ is our head. We don't, as the arm, tell the body what to do. We don't, as the leg, tell the body what to do. And here we go. It, without the head, the hand is useless. It just sits there, right? With, without the head, the legs are useless. No matter how strong your legs may be and what kind of power they may be able to do, maybe, maybe you're just a strong person in the church and you have, you're absolutely nothing without the head. And what we know is that there can be a lot of harm and there's a problem with the body if the body is doing movements without the head telling it to do movements. That's a sign that something is seriously wrong with the body, right? When the hand is moving and the brain is not telling it to move, there's a neurological issue there. When the leg is moving and the head is not telling it to move, there's a neurological issue. So it is with the church. When, when the feet are moving and the head is not telling them to move that way, when the hands are moving and the head is not telling it to move that way, there is a disorder in the church. There is a problem in the church. Oftentimes that leads to chaos and even to pain. If we want to maintain unity as a church body, as Crosspoint, as a universal church even, we must be approaching the Word of God with humility. We must be approaching the the truth as the truth. As J.B. Lightfoot once wrote, Jesus is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power of the church, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. And I pray he is just that for our church here. I love, I love that it, it is, he is the, the center of its unity. We have this talk in our, our culture right now that is screaming unity, yet they're, 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 they're trying to do unity through diversity. That, that doesn't work. 
You know, unity happens because we share a common, common, uh, commonality. And for us, our unity comes through Christ, our head. We, we can be unified because of Jesus Christ. He is the center of our church, or he should be always. If we look back at this verse, we also see the same idea that we discussed last week in verse eight. Uh, uh, last week in verse eighteen, here uh, we see that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This me- this firstborn preeminent means again not that he was ever actually born; he was begotten. He, Jesus has always existed. We talked about that last week. He has always been. He's always been one hundred percent God. But at, at a time in history, two thousand years ago. The miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ happened into Mary's womb, right? The Holy Spirit knit together the fullness of God and man into the man, Jesus Christ. And everything, he may be preeminent. That means he he may be above all. He is above everything. He's the one who has spoken everything into existence, and it's by his power that everything continues, as we talked about. He holds everything together. Everything exists by him, through him, and for him. It is all for his good pleasure. He's not only the, the, the central figure of our scripture, he is the central figure of creation, of everything. So how do we respond to that fact, that he is preeminent, that he is above all, that he matters more than everything? What do our lives look like? Do, do our lives mirror that very fact, that he is above all? Does our checkbook look like he's above all? Uh, Does our time management look like he is above all? Uh, Does our child rearing look like he is above all, that that everything needs to point to him? Or are there some things that maybe outrank Jesus Christ, some things that are becoming above him, whether whether it's finances, whether it's uh, academics, whether it's sports, whether it's whatever that is, those are called idols. They're, they're, They're false gods that we put in front of Christ, and he must be preeminent. Everything must be under his supreme authority in our lives. I pray that as we make decisions, our lives are full of decisions. Every day, every minute, every hour, we make decisions. And those decisions can have temporal consequences or they can have eternal consequences. And I pray as we make those decisions that we look at our, the, the foundation, uh, what, what really truly matters. Next we see, point two, we can envision the invisible through the fullness. We can envision the invisible through the fullness, Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Last week we talked about Jesus being the complete revelation of God. Uh, there was no God that was absent, no part of God that was absent from Jesus Christ. He was 100% man, but 100% God. And now we're, just, we're seeing here that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And sometimes we read something like that and it's kind of easy to gloss over. It's like, okay, yeah, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. But let's kind of just break that down. So all the fullness, the, the Greek for fullness here is pleroma, and it carries the idea of totality, right? It means the, the complete measure of God, the, the, the total, the sum total of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. So no part of God was absent in Jesus Christ. Although Jesus was begotten, as we talked about, he still remained 100% God. And then last we see the, the phrase was pleased to dwell, and this is evdokeo, is the Greek word for pleased here, which means to take delight. Um, so he, he, he not only did this, but he was pleased. He, he, was, he, he took delight <coughs> in incarnating himself, God, into the man of Jesus Christ and into the womb of Mary. Why did he delight? Because he knew what was going to happen, right? He knew that Jesus was going to live a sinless life, which <coughs> the Father did delight in, right? God does delight in that perfect life. 
But what happened at the end of that life? Jesus was crucified. How amazing is it that, that God delighted to save us? You know, that God delighted, that, that he actually took joy in suffering for us so that he could right the wrongs that we had done. How amazing is that? Jesus took on human flesh at the miraculous conception. This teaching is, is at the heart of Christianity. And sadly, many today have denied this very doctrine. And they'll use words like, Jesus is a good man. Uh, he was a, a good, great teacher, as we see here, <coughs> or a great prophet. Well, well, how do we respond to these? And I don't know if you can read that or not, but so Jesus was a good man. Well, Jesus is greater than any man, right? He's 100% God and 100% man. Of course, he was, he was a great man. A good man would be to, to take him down to our level, to say he could be okay, right? He is perfect and unchanging. He, he was a great teacher. Well, he's not a teacher per se. He is knowledge. All knowledge is Christ. He, he's so, uh, to give him that attribute is to demean him. He's, he wasn't a great teacher. He was the source of all he is the source of all wisdom and understanding that we have today, or that Jesus was a great prophet, like he had to have revelation given to him. No, Jesus is the complete revelation of God. He is past, present, and future. He is the great I am, right? So he, he doesn't need our world to try to give him some, you know, th throw him some acorns, you know, th throw him some candy, right? No, he is God. In Colossians 2.9, we see also, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we saw in verse 18 in, in chapter 1 <coughs> that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. and Kind of like this past tense. Okay, this happened. This was a point in time where, where we have God becoming man. 100% man, 100% God. But here we actually see a continuation of that same idea. And I know sometimes we think, okay, yeah, Jesus came came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He rose from the dead. And we forget that Jesus is still 100% God and 100% man. The difference is he's 100% glorified man. So when he came, when he rose from the dead and he came back to the disciples, what did they see? They saw the nail prints, right, in his, in his hands and his feet. And they also, he was able to eat with them. But what was he also able to do? He was able to teleport. <laughs> he was able to walk through walls. He had a glorified body. How amazing is that? In case you missed that, I mean, he, he, can, he he's continues to be 100% man, 100% God. And that's really cool for us to look at, because when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, <coughs> 50 through 54, you know, listen to this with me. I think it'll be up here. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So Christ now, his perishable body that was crucified, has been transformed and raised as imperishable. And we have that same promise. Our perishable body, uh, I, I can I get an amen that our body may be perishing as we get aches and pains, right? So, so it does, it, 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 it perishes over time. It will be transformed and raised an imperishable body. How amazing is that? It will be one like Christ. Now, we won't be comparable to Christ. He is preeminent. He is above all. So it won't be that we'll be close to Christ as far as in rank. or No, no, absolutely not. He is God. We will always be way off, but we will have a new body like his. How amazing is that? We will be transformed. Now, what we're going to look like, uh, it, was, it was great. I was actually teaching 
uh, we were doing an upward devotion uh, for upward basketball, and, and we, we, we were talking about that, and it was really cool because one of the kids said, well, am I going to look like I look now? If, if I would die, would I, am I going to be transformed? And I was like, hey, I, I, don't, I don't know what age you're going to be, how you're going to look, but what I can tell you is it's going to work right. You know, whatever it is, you know, the aches and pains, the arthritis, the hip pain, and the kids are like, I don't understand that. You know, what, <laughs> at, at the older you get, you get in a car accident, something like that, you, you start to feel those kind of things. You know, I feel that back pain every once in a while. It, it, it does happen, but, you know, it'll be amazing. It'll all work the way it's supposed to work. How awesome is that? So, we, so far we've seen that we can envision the invisible through the foundation, and through the fullness. And last we see, we can envision the invisible through the faithful. Through the faithful. Join me as I read verses 20 through 23. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, let's look at, so Jesus Christ is our faithful Savior. He is the faithful Savior of the world. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? He shed his blood for us. And because he was faithful in his life, we can have eternal life through him. We must only need to repent, turn from our sins, and put our faith and trust in our Savior. How amazing is that? Well, this, this section of Scripture is all about the gospel. Uh, he is the faithful one. And we look at verse 20 again. It starts with mentioning all things being reconciled. So when he says that all, and, and to be reconciled means to make, make, make one thing right with another means to kind of to put them together to make it okay and what does jesus make right uh all things and, and all things what, what does all things refer to all things right and so so this verse is focused on the inanimate or I, I, the inanimate which is like the heavens and the earth creation and it's also the animate which would be us right so so he's going to bring it all and, and reconcile it all and we see in romans eight twenty two the need for the reconciliation of creation that will be coming at a second coming. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just like us, his blood covers us when we become saved, but it has not been fully consummated, right? His kingdom is, has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully consummated. So when we become a Christian, we are a Christian. We are saved. We are signed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're delivered from, you know, from eternal death to eternal life. But you know what? We still struggle, right? There's still pains, aches. There's still sin issues in our lives. But, but creation's the same way. It's been covered by his blood, but it hasn't been consummated yet. One day he will recreate creation. He will make it all right, a new heavens and a new earth. We see that the, the lion and the lamb will be together, right? That the child will play near the snake and, and not be bitten, just like it was in the beginning. How amazing is that? So our sin, the sin of mankind, the fall of man has cursed our creation. It groans. You know, what, people ask, well, why, why do hurricanes happen? Sin. Uh, why do tornadoes happen? Because of sin. You know, wh why are there earthquakes? Because of, of sin. Why do animals eat one another? Because of sin. All of that is there, but there will be a time where he makes it all right. In reference to the animate creation or people, we must understand this verse in context. The reason it's so important is because the Bible 
is the inerrant word of God, but if you take it out of context, you can make it say things it doesn't say. We are not to, to add to, to twist, to try to pick it apart and say, okay, well, this says this, this is what I'm going with. And that's actually the cause of many issues in our church today is that people don't have a good understanding of the entire word of God and they interpret one thing based on their culture, based on what they wanted to say, and they go with that. And we have to know the entire word of God. And you may be wondering why I'm kind of talking about that with this, this scripture in Colossians 1.20 that talks about him reconciling all things. Well, there's a group of people called universalists, and universalists believe that you can be saved no matter what, uh, that all paths <coughs> lead to God. Some are more windy than others, but as long as you follow your heart and you're legitimate about it, and you, you really, whether, whether you're you're, you're, you're some, you know, a Chinese ancient uh, religion, whether you're, uh, you know, following Allah, uh, wh- whether you're following a, a Mormon doctrine or a Jehovah's Witness doctrine, no matter what you do, or you're just a plain atheist, no, no matter where you're at, as long as you do it well, you know, and some even don't have to do it that well, to be honest, depending on what universalist you are, all paths lead to the same destination. Today, you don't actually even have to, t- uh, to attend a universalist church or a Unitarian church in order to hear that teaching. Sadly, I've heard it in many mainline Protestant denominations. Today, we hear that from our pulpits, sadly, in what we may refer to as churches, which are not, that that, that preach that there are other ways to God. Who are we to judge others and where they're at? We don't have to. God's Word judges it. And so, this, this truth, this relative truth idea, this postmodernism, where it's like, okay, you can be right and I can be right. They can be completely contradictory, but we both can be right. Our kids are believing that over and over and over again, that there is no true right, that, that you know what, you can feel this way and you can feel this way, and they both can be legitimate truths. My friends, tr- it's either truth or it's a lie. There, there, there is no middle ground. God has no middle ground. There's no gray area with God. It is sin or it's, tr- or, or it's right. It, it is either truth or it's a lie, my friends. We, we, we have to be in the Word. And I bring up this group today because there are some that call themselves Christian universalists. And they take this passage and they run with it. He's reconciled all things. People are part of all things. He's reconciled everyone to himself, and so now everybody's saved. doesn't matter what they do. They can do whatever they want to. We just choose to follow Christ, but, you know, you know it doesn't really matter what you do. You can follow whoever. My friends, the Bible is far from that. The Bible is far from that. This teaching is straight from Satan. And it's actually, sadly, in our churches, because of our biblical illiteracy, many people continue to fall for false doctrines like that, that that you can believe whatever you want to and it's okay, that you can follow whatever God you want to. You can be a humanist. You can just believe that we are God. And whatever you do, and, and God will, he's God is love, and so he will save everyone. He will reconcile everyone no matter what you do. He will do that. But even in its sense, when we're looking at it just in this part here, we see that this is an incorrect rendering. It's faulty. And and to give an an accurate illustration here, I want us to to talk about a big word here, hermeneutics. I don't know if you all have heard of that word, hermeneutics. We we talked a little bit about it um, uh, a few months ago. And I want to make sure we continually think about hermeneutics because hermeneutics is a proper interpretive approach of the Bible. It is something that we really don't teach our people. Uh, it's something that you kind of you hear in seminary, but as far as pastors teaching how to approach the Bible, what do we usually tell you to do? 
read your Bible. Read your Bible, right? But, but if you don't read it properly, then, then it's not really helping. If you're not, if you're not in it regularly and you're not applying it truthfully, then sometimes it can actually even cause some problems. Uh, you know, a, a sword, the Bible's called a sword. You can use a sword for good or you can use a sword for bad. And, and, you, and Satan used the sword at Jesus Christ, right? How did, how did Satan tempt Jesus after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was in the wilderness? What did Satan use? Scripture, Deuteronomy, quotes it three times. He uses the sword, but he uses it to slice at Christ. He uses the word to try to hurt the word, the one who was the word. Now, obviously, Jesus Christ is the word, knew the word, you know, and so he fought back with the word as well. And what did he do? He corrected him, not by his intellect, not by his amazing understanding. He quoted it by the word. And so, so he, he re, his rebuttal was not, I think. And if you ask most Christians, you ask them about a, a deep theological understanding. What does God think about homosexuality? Well, I think who cares what you think? I don't care what you think. You shouldn't care what I think. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to be judging you. And nobody else is going to be judging you. Jesus is going to be your judge. He is your judge. And so what matters is what does Jesus say about that? What does Romans 1 say about that? It is very clear that it is contrary to God's word. What does God think about abortion? Well, in my experience, nobody cares about your experience. I, I hate to tell you that, but your experience does not matter unless it aligns with the scriptures. So we're going to be talking about how to properly interpret the word of God. So I discussed this before, and I I want us to have a proper understanding so we can uh, combat combat, uh, all of these ungodly men and women who try to come up with their own ideas, try to twist the scripture to make it fit what they want it to fit. So taking this passage and breaking it down, we need to start by, uh, you go to the next slide there. There we go. So, so, so you should have a handout. Make sure you kind of keep that in front of you. And if we're seeing here, we have the verse. So Colossians 1.20 will be our verse. Well, first we look at the immediate context around that verse. And we've been talking about Jesus reconciling all things to himself. If we look around that, we see that it talks about the greatness of Christ. We, we've, seen, we've seen that Christ is above all. He is preeminent. Uh, he, only he has the power to make things right. And then we move to the paragraph setting, right? So in the paragraph setting, we've been told that Christ holds everything together. We've, he has the fullness of God indwelling him. He is completely God, completely man, and he's the head of the church. So everything comes through him. If we would look ahead, and we're about to get, to get in here in a minute, we see that, that we were enemies of Christ, that we were hostile in mind to him, and then we're given a qualifier in verse 23, that only those who are true believers can be saved, right? And so as we see in the immediate context, we already see that some are saved and some are not. You only need to go a few verses down, and all of a sudden you see in the context, whoa, this universalistic idea doesn't make any sense. After that, you can kind of go further. You can look in the larger section, look in the chapter. You can look in the whole book. You can look at the, uh, the author, so all of Paul's letters. Then you can look at the entire Bible, starting with the Testament that you're on, working your way out. And if you do that, it it gets you to that target. It helps you understand that verse in its entirety. Notice what I didn't put in here. You don't see in here culture. You don't see in here geography. You don't see in here historical understanding. Those are extremely important as well, but they should never drive an interpretation. And that is the biggest issue that we have in today's church. their, Their target is exactly opposite. 
So, so if you would take this and you would turn it upside down, and all of a sudden you put in the middle historical understanding, ge geographical understanding, cultural relativism, because those are the things that aren't inerrant. Our understanding of biblical culture is not inerrant. Beware of those who come with a new understanding of a scripture, and they base it on culture. They, oh, well, back in that culture, this is what they did. Well, first off, how amazing is it that 2,000 years after that culture, you had a brand new thought that no one else in 2,000 years of the history of the church had ever thought about, had ever discovered, and now you have this amazing, quote-unquote, truth. It's a lie, usually from Satan. It's a way to explain away the Scripture. It's a way to say, oh, yeah, actually, you know, John, I know, I know uh, John 14, 6, which completely refutes this universalism. Jesus said, I am, what, the way and the truth and the life. And then in case you didn't get these, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No more clear than that against universalism. But what, what they'll do is they'll be like, well, in that culture and the way that they interpreted Greek language right there, he said this as, you know, an extreme. And, you know, they, they use this culturally to try to, and, and they'll, they'll try to talk themselves in circles to get you talked out of believing the truth run from those churches, flee from those pastors. They're not pastors. They're, they're, they're wolves that have something uh, over top of them to try to cover it up, right? Even Satan masquerades as what? An angel of light. Run from those people. And I pray that as, as you approach the scriptures, that you take this idea, that, that, that you don't look at sometimes your commentary side that says, well, culturally, historically, not that those are bad, but we start with understanding the scripture by the scripture. Scripture must interpret itself. It is the only thing that is inerrant. So it, it, it's the way that we get to the truth. If other things add some, put some, put some meat on the bones, help us to understand it a little bit further and, and kind of support what the, what, what the scripture already says, yeah, amen to that. That's great. It's great to get uh, the, the creation screams that there is a creator. Uh, when we look out there, we see that there is a God. Those are wonderful things, but that is all general revelation. Uh, that is all things that that it's a, it's a means of grace to unbelievers to let them know, hey, there is a God. You, you see how far we are from the sun and we're not burning up. It, you, you see how our moon controls the tides and how it's the right distance. Uh, you, you, you see how we have morning and night, we have, how, we, how we have an atmosphere. All those are great general revelations to help us know there is a God. But we have the special revelation, the inerrant word of God. And this always trumps any general revelation that we have. And I apologize for the digression, but I want to make sure that we as a church approach the Bible in the same way, because it's the only way that we're going to maintain unity. If we, if we approach the Bible different ways, if we're trying to approach it in, in a more liberally minded way, where it's like, well, you know, I don't know if it really means what it says, and I heard this guy said this, and this historical historian says this, well, we're, we're going to have a hard time because we're not going to be connected to the head. Jesus Christ is the head, and he is referred to as what? the Word of God. The Word of God, this is the Word. He is fully the Word. This is all completely congruent with His being and His nature and where He's at. We must approach it with humility and respect. We must not bring our own pre-understandings. When I was raised, this is what I learned. You have to cast that stuff off. Uh, my mom and my dad said this, throw it away. I, I'm not trying to dishonor your mother and father, but they are not Jesus Christ. And if what they said goes against the Word of God, they were wrong. Well, you know, I feel, and in my experience, this is, you have to cast all of those things, our experiences, our ideas, our culture, what we think, you know, what, what has happened to us in the past, all those things, we have to lay them down 
and approach the Word of God with humility and respect. We need to allow the Word of God to speak, and we need to listen. All right, moving on to verse 21, after my digression there. This is a tough verse. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Mm. That is quite the description of an unbeliever right there. So it's not, oh, you were just kind of doing your own little thing, and you know, you didn't, you weren't necessarily a Christian, but you were a good person. You were doing, no, you were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Everything that you did was evil, because it wasn't in Christ. Even the nice things you did, oh, well, I gave you this. Well, it was evil because it was for your own glory. Everything you did when you were not in Christ was evil. Romans uh, 5.10 says, for if while we were, what? Enemies, uh, right? We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? So we weren't just in neutral ground, right? We were at war with God. We are at war with God if we are not a believer. We are enemies of God. We are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's pretty bad news. Pretty bad, bad news for the unbeliever. But praise God for his good news that he went into right after that, right? It says in verse 22, he has now reconciled us or in, in, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So right after that really bad news, you're a sinner. Not only are you a sinner, you're hostile in mind, you're doing evil deeds, you're an enemy of God, and yet he reconciles us by the blood of his cross. So he doesn't just reconcile. So, I mean, reconciliation is great. It's taking two sides and, and making them okay together, right? So, so you see, like, uh, you know, nations may have issues, and you'll see, a, uh, you know, a reconciliation. You know, may, maybe somebody comes in and tries to talk with this nation and this nation, and they sit down. Okay, we're, we're reconciled. We're cool with one another. We're not going to have a war. We're at peace with one another. Yes, Jesus covered our sins by his blood and gave, gave us peace with God, but it goes so much farther than that, this. So he gives us three different terms here. Uh, if you go to the next slide. So first, he makes us holy. Hyos is the Greek word there. So he sets us apart. Not only are we reconciled to God, but we are set apart for God. We are cleansed. Next, we see that we are blameless, and that's amamos is the Greek word there, without blemish and spotless. So he reconciled us, but he wiped us clean. And then above reproach takes spotless to the next, next level here. Aninkletos is the Greek word here. And, it, and what it does is it means chargeless. It means that things can't even stick on you because you are above reproach. And is it because of how great you are? Absolutely not. It's because of how great Christ is. He does this just in an amazing way. He took us who were enemies, who were hostile in mind, who were completely bent on rebellion, doing evil deeds, and he makes us holy. And he did that by the blood that he spilled on the cross. But he didn't stop there. He gave us his imputed righteousness. This is a, a good theological understanding to imputed righteousness. And the idea that, of imputed righteousness is very, very important for us as a Christian. It, you know, a lot of times people don't really understand, well, why... Why is this so important to talk about imputed righteousness? Well, the Catholic Church teaches that, that works go along with your faith, uh, that, that you know, works help save you, right? But imputed righteousness is really important because Jesus pretty much said you can't do works to save yourself. And, and so we see in Matthew 5, 48, the law had already set the bar pretty high. Well, Jesus takes it to the next level. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Any of y'all perfect? 
I, I don't think I see any hands going up right now. So this is really bad news for mankind, right? This was bad, bad news. We can't do it no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, no matter what we do. His standard is what? Perfection. His standard is perfection. So our works, no matter how hard that we work, the bar was set to perfection. He, he took the law, which was already pretty tough to get to, right? And he took it to our mind. All of a sudden, he said to, to lust, after a woman was to commit adultery, uh, to hate someone was to murder them. So now, not only was it what we did, but what we thought. He literally made it completely impossible to be righteous. Uh, so a lot of people think Jesus lowered the bar. That, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus came, and he just was all love, and, and he just lowered the bar so we all could get in. That's what a universalist would say, right? Oh, yeah, it's great. Absolutely not. Now, Jesus raised the bar higher than anyone could ever reach other than himself. And he did that because he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So although that was very bad news for the believer, 2 Corinthians 5.21 came and says, for our, sake, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our sin on the cross and he exchanged it for his righteousness. He, placed, he took our sin, took it completely away, and he took our, his righteousness and completely applied it to our accounts. So that when Jesus... When God looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness. So we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We don't get any righteousness credited to us for our works. We work out of a saving faith, not for a saving faith. Yes, we will give an account for our works, and there will be rewards given. We can get a whole other sermon to get into that. But, but, but our works do not earn us salvation. They do not earn us a right standing with God. Yet Paul does end this section in Colossians with a call to continue in the faith. And Colossians 1.23 says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And as we read that verse, remember that handout that you have and how you interpret this verse. So, you, so some, some will take this verse and say, oh, see, you can lose your salvation. You know, oh, it, it's if you continue that, you know, there, there's an aspect of I'm going to earn it. <coughs> I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do good stuff so that I can be saved. But we have to read it in context. We have to read it in the context of all of Scripture. We've already seen that we are hostile in mind to Jesus Christ before we are saved, right? We, we see otherwise, other, other areas that he has sealed us. He has given us a guarantee. The Holy Spirit, we see that in Ephesians and, and in Corinthians. So we, we can interpret this one of two ways. We can interpret it that, it, the, our, that our, our works and continuing in the faith is the cause of our salvation or it's the result of our salvation. And my friends, it, it is the result of our salvation because we have no good in us. Christ does that good through us and in us and he maintains us perseverance of the saints would be that doctrine so we see that this is clear but he does give us an exhortation because even we who are believers he he knew that true believers would persevere and he's very clear about that but but he knows even true believers need an exhortation every once in a while because this this life's tough you know th there's a lot of sin in this world there's a lot of temptation there's a lot of things like that and it's kind of that kick in the pants saying keep going keep keep fighting there is a light at the end of the tunnel Jesus Christ has saved you. The victory has been won. Please stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We must stand firm on his word and not shift and slip off of it into our cultural philosophies and erroneous teachings. So as we come to a close, we've seen six ways that we can envision the invisible over the past two weeks. Number one, 
the firstborn, the preeminent Christ who is above all. There is nothing above Christ. Number two, the founder, the cornerstone of all creation, the one who spoke everything into existence by him, through him, for him. And the fastener, the one who, by the word of his power, continues to hold it all together. Then we see the foundation. He is the head of the church. We must be linked to the head. We only do what the head tells us to do. We walk in step with that. He is our organizer. He is our head. He is the fullness. He is the complete revelation of God. No part of God is absent from Christ. And finally, the faithful, the one who followed through with his promise, the one who laid his life down on the cross, the one who died for our sins. And if you have not put your faith and trust in him, repented of your sins, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you have and you just need somebody to talk with you and be like, hey, this life is tough. I need that exhortation that Paul ends there with. Continue on. Help me fight through it. This life is tough. I'd love to talk to you about that. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Let us pray. You are good, God. You are worthy of everything. God, you are above all. God, I pray that each one of us has taken, uh, has a higher view of you through these last couple of sermons, that, that we see you in your fullness as much as we can. Our minds can't comprehend how great that you are, but I just pray that you continue to, to help us to uh, understand you on a deeper and deeper level so that we can worship you in spirit and truth. God, if there be anyone here who does not know you, Lord, may you be drawing them to you. God, if, there, if, we, if for all of us who are believers here, may you strengthen us in a, in a dark world. Help us to stand against the false teachings in this world, to stand firm on you, God. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. Amen. Have a blessed week.